Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Good Thursday evening. Oh, wait. Is it Thursday? No. It is Wednesday evening. May the 20th. The time. 10 p.m. on the East Coast and 7 p.m. on the Left Coast. And welcome to the 194th episode of Political Straight Talk. I am your host, the Political Superman, also known as Fabian, coming to you live from the foothills of Cherokee National Forest. My co-host, who happens to be in the Big Easy, or relatively close to the Big Easy, is Joseph, how are you, young sir? I'm well, and yourself? I am peachy today. As many of you know, we have not been on the air now for about a month. That is because in that month, we have had relatives in the hospital, relatives in a brawl in a restaurant, which was kind of interesting. We have had graduations with Graduates not receiving diplomas and having to go back and work an extra week to get that diploma, along with odds and ends and other things going on. But as of tonight, we will be back on a regular schedule, whatever that regular schedule may be defined as. Tonight's topics, ISIS, and our love for them, or at least certain Democratic operatives' love for them. Also, financial stability and the economy and what impact it may or may not have on the 2016 election. Our prediction of the Republican nominee, if it's been a month and there's been a lot of change in that, and the most important topic of the night is when will Kim Kardashian go off the air? Now, we'll throw the the first topic out there. But before we throw the topic out, I have to tell you that this program is brought to you by the Wall Street Journal, where they give you the right news at the right time, WSJ.com, upper in the upper right-hand corner, type in Political Straight Talk. They'll give you a discount for the paper and send me a big pet check. I like the check. You'll like the paper. Makes everybody happy. Also, it is brought to you by Chick-fil-A, where they did not invent the chicken. Just the chicken sandwich, and by the way, we will have new coupons to give away, hopefully starting next month, because that is the second half of their advertising budget becomes due, and they will give me up to thousand tickets to give away. So, first topic will be ISIS, and that is Joseph's bag. So, I'm going to let Joseph lead the discussion on that to start, and Joseph, it is yours. Take it away. Just over the weekend, we've had ISIS forces that have captured the city of Ramadi in in Iraq. Now, this is an area of, of Iraq that about 1,500 brave American soldiers have 
fought and died for. And when it was said and done in 2008, the American forces and the, and the Iraqi forces controlled Umbar province and Ramani and all these other names that you heard maybe 10 years ago. But because of our president's impotent view of world policy and impotent, how can I put this? Not impotence, naivete when it comes to to how to actually maintain something that Americans have fought and died for. We have an ISIS group that has come that has. Go ahead. Impotence was a good and accurate word, as well as naive. Well, we can use both of them interchangeably at this point. Yeah. Because what you had. Let's let's rewind a little bit to 2008. The promises made by the Democratic Party were we were going to get American soldiers out of Iraq because Iraq was turning into another Vietnam. For those who know their history, America did not lose a single battle in Vietnam. What happened in Vietnam was you had the leftists who attacked and attacked the foreign policy of the Nixon administration, to the point where you even had um, you had Walter Cronkite telling the American people that the war was lost. This was during the Tet Offensive. What people don't understand is, during the Tet Offensive, the the United States troops obliviated the 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 North Vietnamese. There was pretty much no Viet Cong left at the end of the Tet Offensive. Yet the war was deemed unwinnable at this point. So what ended up happening was we decided to make peace with North Vietnam. And that peace caused us to leave. And not that long after we left, we had the fall of Saigon, which meant nearly 60,000 American lives and American treasure was cast aside and deemed worthless because what we did in Vietnam was meaningless because the North Korea the North Vietnamese took it over. This is the same problem you have in in Iraq at this point. You spend billions of dollars to prop up a country, to train their forces so that they can take care of themselves. With the condition that we stay around, we help them out, we protect them. And what ends up happening is, because it's politically expedient for the Obama administration to do so, they pull out, they cut and they run. And what ends up happening is, you have another entity that forms itself within the Middle East, within Iraq, within Syria, and they take power. You know, we haven't won a war, and the United States has not won a war since World War II. The closest thing we came since then was the Korean War. And the only reason we, you could say that's a draw, and that's because we kept our promise to the South Koreans, and we still have troops on the DMZ protecting South Korea from North, from North Korea. 
We didn't do that in Vietnam because it wasn't politically expedient to keep troops there. We didn't do that to Iraq because it wasn't politically expedient to do that. I could promise you if we still had military bases in Iraq, there would not be any ISIS capturing city after city within Ambar province. And this is a failure of the Obama administration to keep up with the Bush doctrine. And for those who don't know what the Bush doctrine was, you fight the terrorists on your terms, not on theirs. Iraq was never about weapons of mass destruction. Iraq was really never about toppling Saddam Hussein. Iraq was a place that we can put American forces down as a magnet for the terrorists and those who hate us to flock. And what ended up happening, like a fly to fly paper, they came. And Americans decimated their enemy. But after that, with the Obama administration, who wants to bring peace and love and tranquility to the universe, they pulled back their forces. We pulled back American forces. And what happens? You have another entity that rose up because of our absence. This should be a lesson to anyone who says that we should be isolationists. Because if we, the only lone superpower become isolationists, then the world goes to hell in a handbasket. And all you have to do is look at Iraq right now. Textbook example. And the sad thing is, we're about to do the same thing in Afghanistan. Afghanistan, we've been fighting for nearly 15 years. And we're just going to throw away that blood and that treasure because it's politically expedient for Obama to get all the troops out before he leaves office. Well, I think that you are correct in the fact that the Obama administration's inability to enforce and, in some cases, uh, strengthen up the Bush doctrine is the reason ISIS was born. And I think the only way that ISIS will be defeated, especially after today they captured another Syrian city, uh, they, com- they captured uh, Ramadi yesterday, The only way that we're going to defeat those bastards is to put boots back on the ground and, unfortunately, team up with Syria in a limited way and go after these bastards. And until we root them out, they're going to continue to be a problem. And, unfortunately, they're going to become a problem directly in the U.S. And as much as I hate to say this, I think becoming a problem in the U.S. will wake up the electorate to the stupidity of Obama's foreign policy regarding ISIS. You know, I think this would be a great time to tell everyone the story of Nimrod. Nimrod was a king, was a Babylonian king. He was a direct descendant of Abraham. And Nimrod was a great hunter. 
Well, Nimrod decided that he wanted not only to meet God, but he wanted to be the ultimate hunter, and he wanted to kill God. So Nimrod started building a, a tower, a tower so grand that it touched the heavens. We call it the Tower of Babel. And when God had finally had enough, he looked at Nimrod and he said, you are, no ma- you are no match for my power. And God, with one fair swoop, destroyed the tower. And those that were in it, he cast them out, and they, they dispersed and spoke many different languages afterwards, never to reveal the secrets of how Nimrod was able to build the tower. I think when it comes to foreign policy, our president is much like Nimrod. Very naive, yet very arrogant at the same time. He thinks he can wave his hand and there will be peace on earth. When in actuality, the world is a lot more dangerous now than it was six years ago. It's going to get more and more dangerous because of naive impotence spewed out by this president. Mind you, this is a one-term senator who before that was a community organizer. You cannot community organize a League of Nations together to create world peace. Yet this is what he's trying to do. And he has surrogates like Botox and Bad Ideas, John Kerry, who parades around the world thinking that he's doing something when he's crying out to his handlers, the Iraqi, the Iranian mullahs are yelling at me. Make them quit yelling at me so we could sign this nuclear peace treaty that benefits the Iranians far more than it benefits anyone else in the world. Or if you have his former Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, who's more concerned about raising money for a presidential campaign and making uh, shady promises to uh, foreign leaders who donate to the Clinton Fund. Now, the next year and a half is going to tell really where the world goes and if the American people don't vote in the right direction, how bad the world is going to really get in the next few years. Well, that's a a good segue into topic number two. And topic number two actually deals with the presidentials of 2016, but more specifically, the economic uh, benefit and or fallout uh, that will influence the election. Currently, now... Let me give people a history of the Obama administration's uh, numbers on jobs and job creation and economic growth and uh, contraction. They will release numbers. You look at those numbers and you're like, huh, it's not too bad. Could be worse. Well, then 30 to 45 days later, that could be worse. 
turns into prophecy because, well, they always release numbers and contract whatever numbers they have originally released. So if they release that 100,000 jobs were created in the last quarter, you can probably bet that only about 45,000 jobs were created. And if they say there was a net loss of 25,000 jobs, you can guarantee there was probably 100,000 lost. Uh, they have always done that since they began releasing jobs reports. Um, right before the election, you saw numbers come out that says the economy is on the rise, it's expanding, it's blah, blah, blah. Right after the election, oh, diggity darn, we are going to release updated numbers, and, well, we're not doing as well as we thought we were. So... Uh, the economy, you know, Obama said in the uh, State of the Union address on 20 January, uh, actually I think they did it on the 21st or 22nd, but whenever it was, uh, the, the State of the Union is strong, the State of the Economy is strong, and I say to you, in the words of Judge Judy, Mr. President, you are a liar, because it is not. But, you can make numbers say and do anything you want them to do, which is what the Hillary machine is out there doing um, to try and prop her what can only be said as a whimsical campaign at best right now, um, trying to grab on to, hey, the economy's starting to get stronger under a Democrat. We need to keep a Democrat in office to keep it getting stronger. And I say that it is bull. What say you? The American public has a few indicators that they look at. And the nightly news is no, is always going to sprout spout these two numbers. What the Dow did that day and what the quote-unquote unemployment rate is for this month. Now, right now, we've had record highs on the Dow. We're over 1,800. What they're not telling you on the nightly news is the reason why we're at 1,800 is because the Fed has been pumping money into the system, meaning that it's hyperinflated, much like it was in... 1987 with Black Monday and sort of like how it was in 2008. Now, the bad thing is once the bubble pops and it's going to come. You're forgetting, Warren, you know, 1987 and Black Monday and then 1999 with the tech bubble. Uh-huh. I was because... also going to say uh, Twenty-nine at the beginning of the, the Great Depression, but that's a different animal. Well, that was that was because there was a lot of paper in the market and no cash. And when these uh, traders came calling for cash, nobody had it. So the nineteen the stock market crash that led into the Great Depression had a lot more to do with people buying stuff on on paper credit than anything. Uh, there was a lot of smoke and mirrors, but the tech, you know, if you're going to use the economy 
the stock market, and I know where you're going with the stock market. It's very overinflated. We have to also we have to also include the tech bubble burst because at the time when that market in what they call corrected itself, uh, it, everything was well overinflated in 1999, which, um, as a matter of fact, I had given a speech to a uh, group of uh, fresh college students where I had said, this is coming, and not two weeks after that speech, voila, here we go. But continue. Well, they're all uh, prompted by a bubble bursting. The savings and loan market in uh, 2087, the tech bubble in 99, and then the um, the housing market bubble in 2007 and 2008. Now, do we have a bubble that's about to pop? And yes and no. The real bubble that people are starting to look at is the debt. The national debt is at $18 trillion, with with an additional $100 trillion in unfunded liability. Now, we segued from ISIS, but you also have to look at what ISIS is doing and where ISIS is positioned. Because if ISIS was, say, go south into Saudi Arabia, that would cripple the oil market, not necessarily for the United States, but for Europe. And if Europe, if there's an oil choke on Europe, that economy will fail or or go into recession or even depression and will cause the United States to do so as well. Now, it's imperative that we get first the international aspect of our economy under control, be it taking care of ISIS or at least holding them back so they do not cause an an oil market crisis. But on the other end, we must start looking at how to relieve the debt that this country is accumulating. Every so often there's there's a call by the um by OPEC nations or other world bodies to stop having the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. Now, if that ever happened, we will face a a tremendous depression. Now, I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime, and I hope to God it doesn't, because if it does, we'll be almost kicked back to a third world nation because of the debt that we have accumulated to foreign creditors like China and Japan. But if you look at our economy as a whole, the first thing you have to look at is how many people are actually in the workforce. And we have the lowest workforce participation since the 1970s. Only about 30%, between 30 and 40% of the, of the American people are actually in the workforce. It's, un, it's unimaginable but we have nearly 100 million people in this country on some kind of government benefit, many of them on food stamps, another bit of them on disability. Now, I'm not sure if the audience knows how the, economy, how the, the government works, but the government does not make any money. 
They don't produce any goods. They don't produce any services that will create its own revenue. The government gets its money from the people. And I jokingly like to say that I wish that Election Day was held on April 16th of every year because that's the day after everyone writes their checks to the IRS. And they see where their money is going. Now, I say that, but many Americans really don't feel the sting of the tax burden because it's taken out of their paycheck every payday. So they may see FIT and really just blow it off. It's only it's not until they go to their their accountant or someone who does their taxes or they do their taxes themselves where they actually realize where that money is going. And at this point our government is spinning us into the ground. And every time that the president says that our economy is doing great or our economy is doing well, all he has to do is look at the numbers of people who are not working or can't find jobs or worse, won't find jobs. As of right now, our unemployment rate is 4.9%, which sounds like a great number until you realize that millions, tens of millions of people have just given up. Right, that's an under work. That's an underinflated number. Also, one of the things that that I've taken advantage of over the over the years, but uh, it's going to be closing actually in the next couple of years, is a tax break called the Earned Income Credit. Uh, they are actually taking away that Earned Income Credit in 2017. So they're not going to be able to, uh, a lot of people that use that earned income credit for various reasons are not going to have that anymore. Uh, So that will take away some of the, that will close up some of the tax issue and the borrowing money because I think they estimate that that will save almost a trillion dollars a year. Well, one thing we have to look at within the next 18 months, because our presidential election is about 18 months away, what can happen to the economy between now and then? And one of the things you have to look at is the price of oil right now. Now, I know the price of oil is being manipulated by the OPEC nations, mainly Saudi Arabia, as a way to lessen the effects of America's impact on the natural gas market. Another thing is they're scared of the other rogue nations in the area, like Iran, like what's going on with ISIS. So they are increasing production, causing the price of a barrel of oil to significantly decrease. Now, the last time this happened was in 2008. Six months later, we had a very bad recession that started. 
Now, those two correlate with one another in a certain aspect because, like in my state, Louisiana is an oil-producing state. The budget of the state is solely dependent on gas of, of a barrel of oil being about 70 to $80 a barrel. Many entities within the United States depend on that oil being at a certain price. Now, it may hurt the consumer down the line, but it keeps operating costs of certain manufacturing industries going. It isn't feasible to sell cheap oil at the cost of production. Now, with cheap oil and the oil and an oil glut comes the well, let me backtrack a little bit. Another one of the reasons why oil is being traded so low is because you have less need for it in other countries like Europe. Europe has probably been in a recession for the last 10 years. And Europe is going to continue to decline, meaning they don't need the same amount of oil as they did 10, 5, or 10 years ago. So you're going to have more oil on the market. And you could you could say the same thing with the United States. You, you, the U.S., because we have a high unemployment that's not being shown, because you have so few industry at this point, you're going to have this oil being traded at a lower rate. The only markets that are really growing and really in demand for oil at this point are your near eastern countries like India and China, which are booming at this point. <clears throat> now, you fast forward to what can happen next summer when the election for president is in full swing, you have a Democrat candidate and you have a Republican candidate going full bore at one another, trying to convince the American people that their politics is right for them and their direction they want to lead the country is right for America. What happens if there's an economic crisis? Let's say we fall into a depression, uh, a recession, say, in the beginning of the second quarter of 2016. The first thing that's going to happen, the Republicans are going to blame the Democrats. Because, frankly, the Democrats have held the White House since 2009. With that, there's going to be plans that the Republicans are going to put forward and how they could save America from this economic slope. On the other hand, you're going to have the Democrat nominee who's going to say, well, what Obama was doing wasn't enough. We need more socialism. The, the government needs to get more involved in the economy. So the Democratic candidate is going to propose their ideas for making America more socialist, more fair, so the economic crisis will lessen when they become president. Now, both of them 
the Democrat and the Republican, they're going to put forth ideas that's going to cater to either the poor man or the rich man trying to survive. Either one. Now, I can tell you what the Democrats are going to say. Because the Democrats have been saying this for the last 15 years, that we need more socialism. But what they don't understand is socialism is really what got us into the mess that we are in today. I'm hoping, I really am hoping that we have an economic crisis. Because I want the American public to see that the democratic ideas of socialism are faulty. Socialism has never worked. No matter where you look in the history of the world, socialism has never worked. Even the most socialist of nations on the planet at this point, which is probably China, is going to a capitalist system. And they're even developing a middle class. Yet we have candidates on the left that keep on saying that the individual doesn't build anything, the government does. Or trickle-down economics was just a line that never worked, and it was always proven wrong. What they don't realize is free market capitalism is the greatest concept of economic policy ever in the history of mankind. And what we have right now is a country who doesn't use it anymore. We've reverted back to socialism. And we keep on reverting back to socialism because we think that's the best thing. Well, we've had socialism to a lesser extent for the last six years. And what we have now is an unemployment rate that's really about 11%. And a dependency class that's grown from a few million to nearly a third of the population. What say you, Fabian? Well, economically speaking, I I agree with everything you've said, but one. That is, I don't want to I, I don't want to see us go through an economic demagogue because the recovery process takes a while. But I do wish people would wake up and realize that true socialism or true communism uh, or a mixture of the both, which is communism as we know it today, uh, doesn't work. It's never worked. It has always failed because under the socialist and communist viewpoint, there's always a few putting in with many taking. And I could go back to many nursery stories and, and about the hen that bakes the bread and everybody wants to eat the bread, but nobody wants to help her make the bread. Uh, that's what you end up having. And I think that the Democrats, what you're going to see, and you're even going to see this with some markets, uh, especially OPEC, OPEC's going to try and dilute the market even more, get gasoline down below a dollar, uh, or down to about a dollar fifty per gallon, because people think with their wallets. 
And what's going to happen is people are going to think, oh, well, Obama and uh, Hillary have made this happen, so let's put Hillary in the White House. Uh, I guarantee you that's what's going to happen as far as OPEC trying to get their nose involved. But OPEC's got other fish to fry with Russia and China, and so, you know, part of their manipulation is going to have to do with that. But you're also going to see our market, I think our market is is going to correct itself very soon. Uh, How soon? I don't know. But I think it's going to be soon. Uh, I think you're also going to see the transparency of Obama's policies. Because truthfully, we haven't really begun to feel the effects of Obama's uh, financial policies on this country. Um, we started a year or so ago to begin to feel the pinch, but you're going to uh, really feel the full-fledged part of it uh, here very soon. So, uh, you know, it, it's a matter of wait and see. Hopefully people will see through the crap before Hillary uh and whoever the Republican nominee really gets going. Now, having said all that, let's let's run into our, our third topic of the evening, and kind of the fun one, and just for everybody that knows, we normally go an hour, but I'm actually going to only go about 45 minutes tonight because I've got some clips uh, from some other programming that I want to put in this one that'll make it about an hour. So, okay, if anybody's wondering why it seems we're pushing through these a little faster than we normally do. But the final topic is, and we did this on our last program, we're going to do it on this program and probably subsequent monthly. We'll do monthly. And that is, since we have last been on the program, we've had several more Republicans jump in the race. We've got Lindsey Gramnesty getting ready to get in. We've had uh, Rick Santorum officially get in, Mike Huckabee officially get in, uh, various others uh, that I call second tier, such as Rand Paul get in. Uh, my question is, and without just simply a, a first name, last name answer, I guess is what I'm looking for. On the Democratic side, do we concur that it's most likely going to be Bill or Clinton? Yeah. She has the infrastructure and the money. I don't see anyone else challenging her at this point. Right. You're going to see Bill start to get out there. And Bill's going to be able to undo what Hillary does because Bill is a very likable fellow. And they're going to use him a lot on the campaign trail. They aren't right now because they don't want it to seem like it's another Bill Clinton campaign. They want her to be out there, and then they'll trot him out. So then the next question is, uh, when we were last on the phone, we felt that uh, both of us agreed that Jeb Bush would probably be the nominee. Given the changes in the political scene over the past 30 days, uh, who do you think will be the eventual nominee, and what nom- what candidate gives that nominee a run for their money? Honestly, I still think Jeb, because Jeb has the infrastructure. 
in most of the states, Jeb also has the bankroll because Jeb has been fundraising under the table probably for the last five years. Right. So he's got the funding. He's got the infrastructure. The person I think that's going to give him the most run for his money is Marco Rubio. Because, and I know they're, they're good friends. They're from Florida. And one helped the other's political camp, um, political life out. But I think that the way it sits at this point, I think Republicans are a little bit tired of the name Bush. But since Bush, what Jeff Bush has that is different from his brother is that he can differentiate himself from his brother and his father, for that matter. And I know that he stumbled on some questions last week and the week before. But he also has a great record to show in Florida. And with that being said, I, I still think he's the one to beat at this point. With Marco Rubio becoming the challenger to his um, eventual um, nomination. Well, I think Rubio's running for vice president. I and think he is also to, to a certain point. Well, now, I'm going to tell you. I think a Bush-Rubio ticket is a mistake simply because both of them are from the state of Florida. But I've, I've said last week, or I said last month, and I'll say again this month, I think the best ticket for the GOP is a Bush-Romney ticket. I really do. Because Romney's got the business sense, and Jeb's got the executive sense as far as how to run a fairly populous state. I think he would do well in the driver's seat or in the second seat versus Romney would do well uh, in the other role as the business executive that reigns in a lot of these departments. Now, most of the time, the, the vice presidential nominee is usually a senator because the vice president is the president of the Senate. With that being said, if you look at recent history, most of the time the nominee will go after someone from the House or someone from the Senate, mostly from the Senate, be it your Dan Quayle or your Al Gore or even your uh, your Joe Biden. With that being said, if you want to unify the Republican Party, and if you're, you're a Jeb Bush who is at the top of the ticket, who is going to cater to many of those blue-blood conservatives, I mean, I'm sorry, blue-blood Republicans. He's going to cater to some of the Latino vote. So you really don't need a Marco Rubio at this point because he's going he's gonna to be able to speak fluent Spanish to Spanish speakers. I would say get a senator. 
and probably two interesting choices would probably be Ted Cruz or Rand Paul. And I say that because with doing that, he could unify more the Republican Party. If it's a Rand Paul, you bring in the libertarian-leaning conservatives. If it's the Ted Cruz aspect, you bring in more Latinos because Ted Cruz could also speak fluent Spanish. But you bring in the Tea Party people. You also bring in some of those libertarian voters. And the one element that you're missing is the evangelicals. Now, I'm not sure many people know this, but Jeb Bush is Catholic. Yes. And many evangelicals don't think too highly of Catholics. Now, that's one element that maybe Ted Cruz could help bring in. Or maybe someone like a Mike Huckabee can bring in the the evangelical vote. It's, 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 a, it's a really dicey decision at this point on who the vice presidential nominee is going to be. Because what you want to do is unify the party. The problem we've had in the last two elections is we did not unify the party. Many people don't realize this, but it came to a million votes. A million people stay at home in 2012, and without and with those votes, we would have President Romney. Now, I think whoever the Republican nominee chooses, they have to cater to those votes that are being lost because their guy didn't win. Well, I see uh, I see whoever's on the other end of the ticket, even though Jeff's Catholic, whoever's on the other end of the ticket uh, needs to be an evangelical. And, you know, the likes of my country would appeal to the evangelical. The problem is he is a populist. And with Jeff being a populist as well, that would be a bit of a problem. See, someone like Santorum wouldn't be bad as a pres- as a vice presidential pick because he well, would cater to the evangelicals. But I mean, I, I have my issues with Santorum. I agree. Well, I, you know what? I think this this leads us to our next show, actually. Uh, I do need to cut this one down because of what I need to add into this one. Uh, Because we're at 46 minutes and I need 15 minutes exactly. So, uh, are you available for a show tomorrow? No, I'm I'm available Friday night, though. Then let's do a Friday night show and we'll do it solely on presidential politics. Okay, that works for me. Anyway, folks, I want to thank everybody for listening. Remember to check out WSJ.com and uh, Chick-fil-A, where they didn't invent the chicken, just the chicken sandwich. Also remember that uh, our freedom is not free. There is a price to be paid for our freedom. 
So please, please, please thank a veteran, thank a soldier for their sacrifice. Because even though they still walk this earth, they uh, they have made sacrifices. And then they've got brothers and kinfolk, uh, whether it be military kinfolk, uh, they they have been affected by the ultimate sacrifice. Anyway, remember also that you've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. And freedom is not free. On behalf of Joseph and myself, we'd like to thank everybody for tuning in. And we will see you on Friday night for another episode of Political Straight Talk. Have a good night, everybody. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.